Welcome to Why. Captain Kyle Williamson is, well, it's kind of hard to explain. He has varied interests and many talents. Uh, I ran into him at a convention one year, and he was engaging with the audience and very entertaining. Um, he's a cosplayer, he's an author, he's a performer, he's a trainer, there's a lot to him. Uh, so I thought it would be interesting to sit down with him, given his broad range of interests and activities, figure out what makes him tick, why does he do what he does. Before we get to that, here is a word from our sponsor, Archivos. Your stories illuminated. If you're a storyteller, you need to check out Archivos, a new story mapping and development tool from WonderThink Studios. Archivos provides storytellers with a unique opportunity, the chance to actually see the network of interaction between the story elements of their settings. Through Archivos's interactive narrative maps, Storytellers can discover and explore the patterns and structures that illuminate their stories. Archivos even allows you to share those maps with your readers, providing an utterly unique and compelling format for fan engagement. Archivos really is the story mapping and development tool for today's storytellers. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A R C H I V O S. Dot digital. Archivos. Your stories illuminated. Uh, so, Kyle, I ran into you for the first time at, I think, uh, Farpoint a few years ago. We were on a panel talking about podcasting. And uh, I, I remember you as a very outgoing, uh, very engaging and energetic person. Who, in, who got the room interested in the subject. We, in, in difference to some podcasting panels that I've, I've been on where it just sucks the life out of the room. Um, <laughs> we, and, and one of the things that fascinated me about you and why I wanted to get you on here is that you, you seem to have a lot of different aspects of your, your character. You, you're an actor, a cosplayer, you design costumes, you're an entertainer in general, a video blogger. What else... What else would you say describes you in terms of what hats you wear? Well, it's very difficult to ever pigeonhole anybody because everyone, you can look at someone and say they're a cosplayer, but they might also be a, uh, a physical therapist during the day. They might, you know, they may also be a, uh, someone who likes to crochet. I don't know if there's a particular term for that. So, Sure, and I, I think it, it differs to a lot of people. You you can't be defined by one thing, which is I think is one thing that's fascinating about you. Um, as an artist, though, what is your primary drive? What What is your interest in? Is it more toward entertaining? Is it the craft? What, what drives you? Um, I enjoy the entertainment aspect. Uh, I also enjoy... The teaching aspect. I mean, my day job as a trainer kind of affected some of my early videos and even videos now where not only do I want to entertain someone, I want to give them some information, some way to make things better. So recently we did a video on attending Dragon Con. Now, Jay, you've been to Dragon Con, haven't you? Yeah, a couple times, yep. It's... 
for those who have never been to a con of that size, it can be daunting and confusing, <laughs> yeah. to yeah. say the least. That, 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 so, so I had the concept of putting together a video to talk about some of the things that are more specific to Dragon Con and things you need to worry about, and also to subtly encourage people to shower which is also a problem at Dragon Con because some people decide that, hey, I can take the entire weekend off of showering. But that's at every con. So, But it just compounds itself when you've got like five hotels and a quarter million people all packed together in, it, in that uh, tube between hotels. That can exactly. become strangling <laughs> the nature, yeah. That, but it's a fun time. It is, it's probably one of the more, more interesting and diverse nerd proms I've been to. And there's so much going on. Uh, have you been to the green room there? I've not been to the green room. There's there's so much I'm still discovering at that particular convention. Uh, yeah. This year is the first time that I'll be covering officially as press. So I'll be approaching it differently than when I just go as an attendee. So I'll be... Looking at the schedule, I'll be going at certain panels. I'll be wanting to get footage from each of the different hotels, which before it was not my main focus. So it's going to be an interesting experience this year just because I'm going in a different capacity. Yeah. Do you, do you have any different requirements? I mean, I know the con requires certain things of participants. You have to be on a certain number of hours programming but for press do you have any like nda or any conditions of what you have to report on no there are still some things that i can't do for example a lot of the cons i go to i can go up to a guest at the con and say hey do you have five minutes to do a quick interview and if they agree you can go off to a corner and i can ask them all kinds of silly questions at DragonCon, they're very restricted in the way that they do any interviews. They all have to be requested ahead of time for any of their guests. And they even don't invite all of the different outlets to interview their um, entertainment guests, their celebrity guests who are in the Walk of Fame. You pretty much need to be pre-approved for that. So just because I'm pressed doesn't mean I can do interviews this year. I'm hoping that next year they'll be like, oh, well, you did such a good job last year. But the main thing is I'm going to need to obviously produce coverage for the con and send it to them so that they can say, yes, it was worth giving Captain Kyle and his crew press passes because they've you know shown our con in an accurate and hopefully favorable way. <laughs> so we want them to come back next year. That's cool. Have you ever thought about taking that on the road to San Diego, doing their Comic-Con? I have, and I'd like to maybe next year. It's a little more difficult because of all the expenses involved. Yeah. If I was a guest, if they said, hey, we want you to come in as a guest to San Diego, I would be like, are you sure you're talking to the right person? But I'd also be very happy because I wouldn't have to incur all the costs on my own. Yeah, that is a bit of a slog. Um, but that's one of the things that's really cool. But it, San Diego Comic-Con, there's a, there are a lot of video bloggers out there who are just 
they point the cameras at themselves to show how cool they are and where they are. But when I watch your videos, you when you talk to celebrities, you talk to other cosplayers, you really seem interested in what they have to say uh, and that you're sharing that information with other people and there's value to that, which is really cool. Is that that did you have any formal training in how you do that? Were you a journalist at any point in the past? Absolutely not. Uh, I know how to write in English, and I've done, in the past, I've done some acting in high school and some community theater and even been in fan films, but it just kind of logically made sense to me how to do interviews. I did get a little prompting from my friend Gia. She uh, works... Um, I'm not sure what her, if she still works, but she at the time worked for NBC, um, actually in the accounting department, but she had enough experience in media to give me a few pointers on how to stand. But really, it's been a learning experience. If you look at my first interviews compared to the ones that I've done more recently, it's a comfort level. I've always been very conversational mm-hmm. with a actor or an artist or whoever I'm interviewing because I've always had it in my head that this is a person. But it's also occurred to me that people watching this interview, they're not watching because it's me. Well, maybe a couple people, but they're strange. (laughs) They're watching because they want to know about this particular actor or actress or voice actor or author that's the focus of the interview. That's the focus of what's going on. So I'm there to facilitate the extraction of information. And I also try to be a little bit more, how shall we say, uh, chill and not always ask the same exact questions that they've gotten from every other interviewer. Like, what was your motivation for this scene 10 years Uh ago? That took you two minutes to do. It's more like we try to throw some fun questions in there, like favorite picnic food. If you could get a superpower, what would it be? What's your go-to karaoke song? To kind of give a glimpse of the person behind the character that everyone loves. So who's your favorite interview so far? It's hard to say, and I don't want anyone getting mad at me. I will say some (laughs) of the notable ones are uh, Marty Warner. Marty Grabstein of uh he is the voice of Curds the Cowardly Dog. Uh-huh. Uh he was a heck of an interview. He was just hilarious. He was singing the uh the original cartoon um Thor theme song during the interview. He was he was just wild, energetic and crazy. And I, I do love those interviews because it really entertains people. It shows the person, again, behind the character, it, it was somewhat a performance, but it's also, I had talked to him the day before, and it basically also matches his personality. Wow, well, okay. You well, never well, know, yeah, you never know when you're talking to someone who, uh, you know, what's going to be revealed. Um, David Morrissey, who plays the governor in The Walking Dead, very different from his character in real life. Very pleasant individual. Um, always has a smile. Uh, he actually knows me on site, mainly because I cosplay a lot of his characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your governor is badass. 
if you have the chance, look it up. It's 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 spot on. Well, thank you very much. You should come to Woodbury sometime. <laughs> <laughs> so he was good, and yeah, that's that's the other aspect of cosplay that you you don't just put on the costume and say, "Look how awesome I am." You you get into the character, which I guess is the the spirit of real cosplay, as opposed to just putting on the costume and walking around. You, I guess, uh, are you driven by your ability to perform that character when you choose your costumes? Well, that's what attracted me to cosplay, just dressing as the character, though there are some really neat outfits, wasn't really enough of a motivator. I wanted to portray the character. I, I think there's a difference between a, a costumer, um, who could also be a cosplayer, I think costuming is more the craft of making a costume, and I have very little skill at that. Uh, I have people that I go to. I can occasionally make a prop or paint something. But the cosplay aspect, uh, and I have great respect for those who can make costumes. I have no doubt about it. I've seen amazing things. The where The strength that I think I have is in trying to be the character as much as possible. I've been told when I'm dressed as certain characters, I even walk differently. Mm-hmm. In some cases, I talk differently. Just the mannerisms, that's what fascinates me. I don't want to dress up like Han Solo. I want to be Han Solo. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe not with a lightsaber sticking through him, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, with that all said, uh, this is the now. Let's, in the words of the immortal Aretha Franklin, let's go back, let's go back, let's go way on way back when. Why did you get to this point? What what made you into Captain Kyle? Wow, you want the origin story. Oh, well, we could break it down. I mean, I, I can say that when I was a kid, I was inundated with pop culture. We didn't know it as, as such, but... A lot of those things, the values, the characters, inspired me to go in a certain direction. I'm sure you have similar stories. Actually, I was bitten by a radioactive YouTuber. No, the... <laughs> I, w- I grew up as a major geek, and one of the things that informed me, other than my love of Star Trek and science fiction books, Asimov was my... Um, my go-to uh, reading, Piers Anthony, um, Silversberg, Heinlein, if I'm pronouncing his name right, I never know. If I'm pronouncing his name right. I never met the man before he passed, unfortunately. And I was a big reader. I was into that. And then I got into Transformers. And actually, Transformers had a quite an effect on me as well. With How's characters that? like Optimus Prime, very noble, um, And what's interesting about Transformers is they weren't just, here's a toy, you know, bring him into battle. They had full, fleshed-out character bios. And Hmm. some of them actually had gems of wisdom within those character bios that kind of resonated with me. Hmm. I I would not have expected that, but your explanation makes perfect sense, considering, uh, you know, I've always thought of them as as a Hasbro advertisement. Um, but you're right. If I if I think about that show back in the day, the original version, yeah, they they were very much very similar to GI Joe. They weren't overly complex characters, but they had depth to them. Well, what's interesting, yes, obviously Transformers came 
about as far as being a toy commercial. And the reason I think it won over GoBots is because of the depth of the story. They went to Marvel. And I actually recently was speaking with Bob Budiansky, who did a lot of the... He pretty much did all the character bios for the original G1 Transformers and came up with the majority of the names, with the exception of Optimus Prime and Prowl. Those were actually invented by someone else. But he's the one who wrote a lot of that a lot of the character bios that were quite fascinating. And I actually, when I was speaking with him, I had to tell him, and he, it was 35 years ago, so he doesn't remember everything he wrote, obviously. Yeah. But there was a text fact. You, you know who Bumblebee is, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. He's pretty well to... known. Mm-hmm. Yep. There was a point in the Generation 1 series where he was damaged, and they rebuilt him, and he was renamed into Goldbug. And wow. the character bio on his packaging actually resonated with me because uh, it said that he was more confident and secure in himself and realized, and here's the key, that what he thought of himself was much more important than what others thought of him. And that kind of flicked a light bulb for me when I was young and said, that makes perfect sense. It really doesn't matter if this jerk in high school who thinks I'm a geek, you know, doesn't think I'm cool. What do I think of me? That's the person I need to live with. So, right. well, that's so yeah, good... there, there were gems in there. <laughs> yeah, well, that brings up an interesting point because you and I are of the generation where being a geek and a nerd was wasn't a marketing strategy or a marketing cluster. It was it was a target you wore on your back. Was was that a problem for you growing up? Oh, absolutely. I kind of had additional um, challenges. Uh, my parents, when they were raising me, I was, uh, I was raised as Jehovah's Witness. I am not a part of that particular religion anymore, but I, I grew up that way. And some of the things that made you stand out as a Jehovah's Witness is you weren't allowed to salute the flag. Uh, holidays pretty much were not observed at all. So during Halloween or Christmas parties, which they had back in my childhood, in school, I would actually go to the library instead. So I was kind of set apart for that. Plus, I wasn't into the sports. I was into Star Wars. I was into Star Trek. I was into reading. I was into the Dragon Riders of Pern. Yeah. And did did any of that come any of that, those interests conflict with your, your family's beliefs at the time? Not, Transformers or Star Wars? Not really, though. It was uh, interesting. My mother always suggested that I, with my action figures, put aside the guns and have them cooperate and work together. That's <laughs> fun. Well, that sounds like my mom, too. I don't think that's necessarily a faith-based thing. That's I think my mom thought that if, you know, if I was so interested in guns, that's pretty much how I would stupidly end my own life. But that's, that's a completely different story. Well, you still have time. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I'm, you know, I'm the kind of guy that can uh, burn cereal uh, trying to make it. So, yeah, there, there's a good chance that I might stumble over my own feet and have that end. But I just share the same kind of story you do growing up back when. 
it was cool to like Star Wars, like Star Wars. But if you were one of those guys who could name the the background characters, like the ones that they made in the action figures early on, you crossed a certain line, and you were now not no longer of the body. And Star Trek was kind of the same way. And so, I, yeah, I, I, I'm interested to see how now we can go to these events like uh, the one that's going to happen at uh, Harrisburg Mall, um, sci, uh, Sci-Fi Day at, at, with uh, the USS Susquehannock, and all walks of life recognize their love of something. And I'm curious, these people who are now so interested in science fiction, fantasy, and geekdom, uh, at our when when they were going to school with us, they were the ones who were taunting us. And now, did, did they really like it the entire time? They were just too scared to say so? Or did they suddenly have a, an epiphany and, and came across to our side? I'm, I've, never, I've never understood that. Well, Jay, I think with these people who are um, joining geek culture, I hate to say jumping on the bandwagon because it sounds like they're unwelcome. And for some geeks who grew up like us, they're thinking, oh, these people, they didn't pay their dues. They don't deserve to be geeks. I, I don't believe that at all. I think we should welcome them in because I'm all about inclusion, not exclusion. I, I don't like gatekeeping and saying, oh, you've only seen the last two Star Wars movies, you're not a true fan. I'd rather say, oh, you, you enjoyed the last two Star Wars movies. You should check out these other ones and here's some books. Here's yeah. some comics. Join us. Welcome, well, brother. Do, Take a seat in the pew. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Though I do think that a lot of people, when we were growing up, there was a lot of social pressure to conform, to be the same as everyone else. You didn't want to be different. You didn't want to stand out. So I think even if they had an interest in Star Trek or Star Wars or anything of that nature or wanted to play D&D, they stayed away because they didn't want to become a target, especially with such shiny examples as you and I standing there getting called all kinds of names that would not be politically correct to say today. <laughs> And getting persecuted and yeah. seeing this example, it's like, okay, I kind of want to watch, you know, this Battlestar Galactica show and talk about it. But there's, you know, Jay over there and, you know, he just got shoved into a locker because he's wearing a colonial pin or something like that. So I think a lot of fear and a lot of um, concern that... You wouldn't be part of the popular crowd if you gave in to these interests. Uh, pretty much kept a lot of people from doing that. I, I think it's wrong. I think they should have been more themselves. But it's, it's tough when you're a kid, when you see everybody else. And even the school system is designed to say conform, conform, be normal, be a you know, stand-up citizen, they don't really encourage creative outlets unless it's, you know, a little bit of artwork or music class, which, you know, I think they still have those, but... Uh, not, not, as much, not as much now, though, as now. They're getting cut back. Now, football. No, I'm, now I'm turning into an angry old man. i got to stop that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, back in the day, we, there wasn't as, as big of an, a, a drive to recognize diversity or differences in people. Everybody was trying to move toward one homogenous American culture. And I, I think if I had more than uh, two 
African-American students in my class for the first eight years of my education, I, I would be surprised. I don't remember that. And it was very easy for, without the diversity culturally or racially, um, it's very easy to start making people think a certain way and embrace only a few different ideas. But I'm glad to see that while we still have a bunch of different problems, uh, my kids aren't suffering that same issue. I was they fully in for other reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but even that's changing. You have you have kids who have the courage to come out and uh, identify uh, themselves in a way that might brought, bring about persecution, but they still have the courage to do it, which is wonderful. And I think that is a result of of the culture recognizing that diversity brings strength. Uh, and I, I like to be that optimistic because I don't think we really live in in a very optimistic time. We've got a whole lot of problems going on, and, uh, and it doesn't seem we have a lot of leaders to solve it, but at least we seem to be a little bit further along than we were back when we were in school. It, it is a struggle. I think people tend to stick with the what, what they know, and something different challenges that perception. Mm-hmm. Though I don't think we want to really necessarily go down the political path at this point, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So... So being a geek and growing up that way, it wasn't until, like, after my high school years that I found um, groups of people that were into similar things as me. But I actually didn't get into the whole cosplay thing until maybe six years ago, somewhere along those lines. Okay. I went to conventions. I... I went to a few conventions when I was younger, a couple sci-fi conventions, and I didn't dress up. I went to uh, BossCon and uh, LunaCon. I lived up in Connecticut at the time. So. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. so those were some interesting experiences, the, uh, the sci-fi convention and actually seeing in real life someone wearing a propeller hat, which, you know, hey, I'm all about. Express yourself if that's the hat you want to wear. <laughs> right. Now, there's a gap there, and I want to, I want to see how this, this chain links. Um, you were a geek early on, and you have experience acting, which, which I assume you got into long before you got into cosplaying. Was your, was your interest in acting a result of your interest in pop culture, or was it inspired by something else? Well, in high school, one of my favorite classes was theater arts, and I enjoyed um, that particular class. I wasn't a good high school student, unlike a lot of geeks who were like, they always showed up to their school, and they did their homework, and they mm-hmm. got good grades. Uh, I like to think I was smart, but I really wasn't interested in going to school, and a lot of times I'd come in late, but I always enjoyed the acting classes. And then I got involved. Um, my town had a community um, services program, and one of the things they put together was getting high school kids to do improv acting and go around to some of the elementary schools and put on little skits like, you know, don't do drugs, or if a stranger approaches you, here's what you do, or if something's going on at home that, you know, makes you feel uncomfortable, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, playing the villain was fun. Um, I I was hated. (laughs) (laughs) But I always enjoyed that. 
I always wanted to be an author. Um, I enjoyed the acting. I wanted to do something creative, and then life caught up to me, and I just kind of put those dreams aside. And it wasn't until I started, until I moved to Pennsylvania and started hanging out with a lot of geeky people, and someone mentioned to me, um, a friend of mine, Paul, said, hey, I know someone who's putting together a Doctor Who fan film. Um, and he's, you know, he's casting. And I'm like, I kind of think I can act. So I went and I auditioned for the part of the Doctor. And I actually didn't get it. I got the part of the villain. So there's ah. a pattern here, I think. <laughs> but, but being the villain's more interesting in most cases, don't you think? Oh, yeah. You, you can do a lot more. Uh, you're not so constrained by, you know, honor and morals and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Which, those pesky, pesky limitations, yes. Hey, in real, life, in real life, I'm all about the honor and the morals, but when you get to play the part of someone very different from yourself, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So I got into that. I will never show anyone that fan film. I have it on DVD somewhere, hidden. And I... <laughs> And it wasn't that it was that bad. It's just the story uh, was supposed to be Doctor Who, but it was actually very, very dark. Uh, so we actually showed it at the Greater Philadelphia Doctor Who Fan Film Festival. Ooh, how'd that go? That was uh, pretty good. See, at the time I was getting into the acting, I also started to get into cosplay and the acting bug bit hard and I started going and seeing if someone else had something going on. Can I play a part? So I ended up playing Captain Jack Harkness in a couple things. I ended up going to, uh, and saying I can write too. Hey, and <laughs> doing, doing a couple of my own fan films. And my problem was when you make a fan film, you can't sell it. You can't make money from it. Right. And I wanted to show it to a bunch of people, but getting like 400 people or something into my living room to just watch it on TV would be problematic. So I was trying to figure out how can I not break copyright law and get the wrath of the BBC done upon me, yet still show it to a lot of people. And then I figured I would actually run a fan film festival. And get other people's fan films as well. And have it at a place, charge admission, but anything above cost went right to St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. So mm. I figured doing it for charity, and I even sent a message to the BBC informing them that I was doing this. They did not respond, so I just went and did it. And if they really want to come down on me for supporting St. Jude's, that's yeah. really up to them. <laughs> And but, it's, it's important that that you you identified some kind of pay it forward um, option for that, as a lot of people just just say, oh, it costs us so much money, we don't even want to catalog it, and just do it because they feel they have a right to. Well, as someone who's written stuff and produced now, you know, three almost four hundred videos, I respect people's ownership of their material that they create. 
Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to use your material, uh, if I can seek very easily uh, permission, I'll do so. Otherwise, I make sure that I use it in a way that's respectful or it's covered by fair use, so I won't potentially get, uh, <laughs> right. get sued. But I also, I understand with fan films, there was a there was a whole thing about one particular fan film project making way too much money and a lot of boasts that kind of changed things for Star Trek fan filmmakers, mm-hmm. which we could have a full hour just talking about that situation. You're talking about Axonar. Uh, yes. Yeah, that, that, that changed the landscape completely. And they forgot that with fan films... Fan films are basically illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, yeah. Yeah. Basically, you're taking someone else's property without their permission and using it on your own. But Mm -hmm. it is tolerated, it is allowed by a lot of these places as long as it doesn't make money and it's not too disrespectful to the original property. It it kind of, there's a gray area there because for a time back in, at the beginning of, of uh, high-speed internet, uh, Lucasfilm and Marvel and other IP owners were actually encouraging people to go out and make these movies. And it kind of set the tone that if you were a fan, you owed it to the creator to try and impress them by creating your own version, offering it up. And I think now that Disney owns pretty much everything, we've seemed to have come back and gone the, the opposite direction where we realize the corporations have to realize that they they have to protect their IP, especially now when when the technology is such that a fan film can be indistinguishable from a professionally produced video or audio production. Absolutely. Well, when I saw I use Adobe Premiere for my videos, and watching the Deadpool movie in the credits, it says you know it was edited with Adobe Premiere, and I'm like. I use the same software. Hey, I'm just like Deadpool. Well, <laughs> I don't make nearly as much money, but or or talk to the camera nearly as much sometimes. But yeah, I was amazed, and it is amazing what people can do with the technology. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's still the case that um, a lot of fan films are not well paced, well written. Yeah. It's there are some some standouts, but a lot of people are like I have an idea and I want to do a fan film and a lot of times you can still even with all the technology tell that it's a fan film. Oh, sure. Sure. I think 99% of them are clearly let's put on a show and and have fun over over a couple of weeks in the summer or whatever. But I'm also seeing an emerging group of like it in in uh in the case of Axonar, you have professionals being hired, and they're being labeled as fans. Well, I'm a professional director. I directed Free Enterprise, so I've got the ability, but I'm not a professional director in this context. I'm a fan only. Even though I'm cashing a check to direct professionally, <laughs> I, I'm still a Star Trek fan, first and foremost. And I think that's really what set Paramount and CBS off to say, hey, wait a minute, when you have... You have struggling filmmakers, guys out of film school, who they're trying to make this into their business card or their their um, their portfolio. That that's just way over the line. I, I also think it had a lot to do with 
boasts that this particular fan film was going to be far superior to anything that Paramount was putting out. And I don't think that's something that you want to say when you're basically making a project um, that is based on the goodwill of the copyright holder. You don't want to say, oh, my Star Wars fan film is better than anything that Disney's putting out, and I just made a million dollars in crowdfunding. You know, if that was to happen today, Disney might come by and say, all right, we're going to put restrictions on Star Wars fan films now, as Paramount did with the Star Trek fan films. Yeah. But... Your your uh, guy behind the scenes is probably like you are. Go- guys are going way off subject. I'm surprised <laughs> we haven't gotten. <laughs> well, it's so, interesting because he's, uh, your background as an actor and your your interest in appropriating in, in a good way other IP in order to promote it. I think lends itself to the conversation uh, because you do inspire. You do bring people into the fold, as you said earlier. And and here's here's a seat at the pew. Have a seat. Enjoy our newsletter. Um, but yeah, you're right. We do need to move on. I do want to give you an opportunity to share where people can find your swag and your, your material. Where can people find you? Okay. Well, in this journey that I had, I went from just doing fan films to actually doing a talk show called, uh, originally called Captain Kyle's cosplay spotlight. And, and eventually I ended up a YouTuber. Um, which has now changed. It is now called Fandom Spotlight. And our new saying is follow your fandom, which basically encourages people to do what many, when we were younger, didn't feel comfortable doing, you know, to freely follow. If you like Star Trek, you don't have to hide it. Follow your fandom. So fandomspotlight.com is the website. We spell spotlight, S-P-O-T-L-I-T-E. Um, it's a little bit different than the normal spelling, but we were smart enough to also register the domain name of the correctly <laughs> spelled spotlight, but it's fandomspotlight.com is the website, or you can just search for fandom spotlight on YouTube. And we are approaching 400 videos currently on YouTube. Oh, wow. That's great. So a lot of work. But it's it's not just myself. I do have a team. Uh, I know you've met May. I have uh, May Milam, um, also known as Maiden Cosplay. Um, we've been working. Huh? She's actually sitting over in the corner, playing on her tablet, and you know, shaking her head at everything I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> okay. Hi, May. Hello. Did you hear that? Yep, sure did. Okay. Uh, we're also working with um, Peyton DeSanta more recently. She's actually been in some of my earlier fan films, and then she isn't a good editor. Um, she's also does acting, so she's been joining our team, so she's been working with us. So it takes, takes quite a few people. Um, Constance was my co-host on the talk show and helped out for a while um, before she got busy with her own um, endeavors and we pretty much said, yeah, you you got stuff going on. Um, And a lot of people, um, Missy Trachek, um, and there's so many people when I was doing the talk show shoots that 
helped out and came out because you need a crew. You can't just come out there and have one person. You know, when you have three cameras and an audio station with lav mics and lights and makeup, I, I've learned a lot about putting out video and creating video. And it has been, it's still a learning process. I'm still learning more about doing video and always trying to improve. I don't think I'll ever reach perfection because I don't think it's attainable, but yeah, there's a lot of people behind the success of my, as it is, my YouTube channel Mm -hmm. and website. That's usually the result of a of a good leader or somebody who inspires others, which seems to be the motivation behind most of your act- activities. Well, I like to bring people together to work towards a goal. We actually have a uh, uh, a, a lovely lady named Kezia in our in Australia who actually helps out with our social media and has written articles for us and is hopefully going to be doing video for us. So, but it. it when you look at someone like Robert Downey Jr. going up, you know, and everyone's like, he's so great. His greatness, you know, he is a great actor. Um, I'm, I'm not comparing myself to him. I'm not saying that <laughs> I could have played the role of Iron Man, you know. Uh-huh. Actually, I am Iron Man. No, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite on his level, but, he, you know, he had a lot of assistance, you know, when he's looking good in Iron Man and the Avengers, there's a lot of people who are helping him look good and helping him maximize his talent. Sure. So I think when people come together, they can help each other uh, with their talent. And and basically, it's kind of a feedback loop. Okay. So that, you know, I'm helping you, you're helping me, and everyone becomes better because of it. Project Archivos. And finally, uh, as contractually obligated, we are returning to our Project Archivos. Archivos, your stories illuminated. They sponsor the show. They uh, keep us running. And uh, Dave Robison, Dave Robison, who is the founder and the creator of this um, storytelling and mapping and creation software solution, uh, gave us the genre of the story that we will be following. We will be creating collaboratively through this this season of interviews. Uh, Dave gave us near future science fantasy as our genre, um, and that's kind of an open concept to explore as creatives. And Captain Kyle, we pulled the name out of the hat, what aspect of the story you'd be responsible for coming up with, and you drew location. So what location will we set our new future science fantasy story in? Well, I like to go a little off the beaten path. So I would say let's keep it confined to a robotic valet parking garage. Robotic Valet Parking Garage. And I have to ask the question because it's in the damn title. Why? Why? Because I don't think there's enough things that are set in parking garages. (laughs) I mean, that's where... It's an underrepresented location. Yes, I I understand. Okay. And 
And to make it near future, to have robotic, I mean, you could definitely work a lot in a plot with having um, robots that are moving around cars, and could they be reprogrammed for good, for ill, or to just dance in the corner? You know, you, you, it gives you a lot of options, That, but it's also like, okay, I'm in a parking garage. Why is he stuck in a parking garage, the, or, or she, the protagonist? Why... You know, it makes, I think, for interesting story. Well, fair enough. That's great. So for those of you playing at home, uh, you can check out the progress on archivos.digital. We'll post a link to the specific storyboard in the description of this episode. But it's near future science fantasy set in a robotic valet parking garage. Thanks, everybody, for downloading or streaming. Uh, please like and subscribe to this podcast and let us know where you're listening from. If you're listening uh, from Spotify or from iTunes, what platform are you on? Give us some feedback, your thoughts and questions, and we'll try and address them on the air. Again, we'll, we'll hear from you, and we will talk to you again in the very near future. Why is a production of J. Smith Audio. Produced by Holden Smith and J. Smith. Music by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. The series is sponsored by Archivos, your stories eliminated. Check them out at Archivos, A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital.